Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Broadcasting from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California, this is the Success Society. I'm your host, Krista. Here with our producer, Michael, and we are excited to have on the show today, Jamie Paul Lamb, who's going to be talking about the history of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. He's an astrologer and tarotist practicing in the context of the Western esoteric tradition. He's the author of three books on the subject of Freemasonry and Western esotericism. His work has also been featured in astrological journals and esoterical esoteric sorry periodicals he's also a co-host and co-founder of tria prima podcast and he is a past master of ascension lodge number 89 and a frater of both a branch of a rosicrucian society in arizona and the hermetic society of the golden dawn so we think he's going to be a wonderful guest to talk about this topic but before we get started michael has a few announcements Hi, everybody. We are recording this episode, but uh, we will be on the live chat tomorrow when it premieres. So if you're watching live, then please chat with us and we'll be happy to interact with you guys. Um, we have a special episode coming up this Saturday, which will be our annual prediction show with our good astrologer friends, Caroline and Marnie, and our new numerologist friend, Carrie Jane. And that will be at one o'clock on Saturday. So it's a special time. It's a two hour episode. So Join us for that as well. And we've got all kinds of other great stuff planned. Get all the information on our website, sixcentssociety.com, S-A-X-T-H, all spelled out. While you're there, buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. But most importantly, go to YouTube, click like and subscribe if you're watching us. And we're also available as a podcast. So if you're out and about, just go to anybody, Spotify, you know, Apple, anywhere you go, Google, and just uh, search Six Cent Society will pop right up so you can listen when you're in the car and whatnot. Um, so I don't want to take up too much time, so I'm going to kick it back to you guys. So take it away, Krista. Great. Thank you, Michael, and welcome to the show, Jamie. Hey, Krista and Michael, thanks so much for having me. I'm really uh, excited to be here and looking forward to some good conversation with you guys. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating. I've always been fascinated with that period of time. I was talking to you before the show, the late 1890s, and you had the Theosophical Society starting, the Hermetic Golden Dawn. It was just really amazing. So let me ask you first, though, is how did you first get interested in the, the Golden Dawn yourself? So it's funny, about... Uh... Maybe 15 years ago, I went to a film. I was living in Minneapolis. Could have been a little more than 15 years ago. I was in Minneapolis, and there was this film festival, um, you know, just small film festival sh showing the films of uh, Kenneth Anger and Hodorowsky. And uh, I was a fan of both of their work, so I went to go see this uh, you know, just a small showing inside of what turned out to be a temple. Um, now it was an OTO temple, but, uh, I do remember going in there and there was a tree of, I didn't know what this stuff was. There was a tree of life on the wall and there were various trappings of, you know, what I know now as this species of Western esotericism, this, uh, you know, these, these Victorian magical society trappings and things, um, various you know pillars and kabbalistic things and then uh i came to find out later that they were this you know and i remember having 
a thought while I was just sitting there again, not versed in this stuff. Um, I thought to myself, this is vaguely golden Dawny. And I don't know what made me think of that other than perhaps I picked up the term from uh, maybe Arthur Macon or reading Lovecraft or something like that. That must've been where I heard it, but that was my first inkling of um, golden Dawn type stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it was just a couple years later that I got interested in Freemasonry and, um, you know, after, you know, doing my studies there and kind of uh, learning about that tradition, uh, I happened into Rosicrucianism and then into the Golden Dawn tradition. So, and that was kind of the trajectory for me. It was Blue Lodge, what we call just regular craft masonry. And then, and then I was uh, initiated into the Sokiatas Rosicruciana or Societas Rosicruciana in Kivitatibus Federatus. That's the U.S. version of SRIA from whence all those early Golden Dawn founders came. And um, and then from there, it was just a short leap to, uh, to um, starting on the golden dawn tradition i had to well that's kind of an involved story i had to kind of retrieve a charter from victoria british columbia and bring mm. it down to phoenix so we, i had to do grades up there and then out in austin texas as well because we didn't have a body here in phoenix so we we built this uh you know from the ground up here in phoenix Wow, that's great. That's a really interesting story. Uh, you know, I think that it's possible. I mean, I don't know if you go for a reincarnation, but I feel like people that have uh, interest in the magical orders, whether it's Freemasonry or the Golden Dawn, could very well have been alive during that time. That is my own philosophy about it. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, there definitely was an instant attraction. Now, whether that was some sympathy from, um, you know, a, a past that was, you know, that I'm unconscious of, uh, that could definitely be. I mean, or even if it is just some sort of, you know, um, an affinity from some deeper level that I'm, you know, just right. not able to access consciously. So let's start at the beginning then. It does seem like Freemasons were involved in the founding of the order. Isn't that true? Yeah. So uh, it was it was back, like you said, in the um, mid to late 1800s, um, basically in the London occult milieu, milieu at the time. There were people like Kenneth Mackenzie, um, Jonathan Yarker. Uh, Theodore Royce was sort of in that, you know, they, these all these people were collectors of rites. They were Masons, but they were also interested in elaborate rites like uh, Memphis Mitzrayim and, you know, all the various, you know how we talk about uh, Scottish rite and York rite and these things. So there were tons of these extant rites at that time, some of which were being practiced, some were not, but uh, they were basically traded among this group of, um, you know, essentially collectors and occult enthusiasts at the time. But uh, the way it kind of really began with the Golden Dawn is Kenneth Mackenzie, who was the author of the uh, a certain Masonic encyclopedia. I know there are several, but he was the author of one of them, and he um, he was he was in the circles with people like um, uh, 
Hockley, Frederick Hockley. So they had this society of eight, they called it. And the the biggest and brightest were in this society of eight. It was limited to eight people. And amongst them, they had certain um, correspondences. You know, the body of correspondences that we attribute to Golden Dawn knowledge lectures, the teachings of the Golden Dawn theoretical teachings. Well, these are the people, Hockley particularly, and Mackenzie, who sort of codified that. Now, where they got it, we don't know, because it is different from Eliphas Levy and the, the continental attributions, hmm. like say, the Hebrew alphabet to tarot, you know, the, which on the continent kind of come from um, Comte de Millet and uh, Court de Jabeline, and then into Levy's work and et cetera. But these are, that's a different body of correspondences. What you see in England at the time were the ones that we find in the Golden Dawn. Mm -hmm. So it essentially was, all of that knowledge was essentially reduced down to a set of cipher, what they call the cipher manuscript, mm -hmm. which is a collection of, I think, about 60 folios. Wow. And and when Mackenzie died, so here's how the kind of, I think the real story, there's a couple stories on the beginning, but the one that I think is the most tenable is uh, Mackenzie dies and Westcott, William Wynn Westcott, uh, goes down to the south of England, like Brighton, one of the beach cities there, and um, talks to Mackenzie's widow and under the pretense, I think, of getting these other documents for, I think it was uh, Sat Baha'i, might have been the order that he was trying to get these rights. And um, But among those papers that he picked up after Mackenzie's death were those 60 folios, what we know now as the cipher manuscript. So he brought those back to London and he was obviously very enthusiastic about this. And he brought them to uh, Samuel Little McGregor Mathers, who was also a member of the SRIA, which is the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia. And they got together and sort of turned it into a workable system. Mm. And Mathers had a lot to do with that. So, so yeah, that's where you really see the kind of the the nucleus begin to form. The alternate story is uh, they found the papers in a, the, the cipher manuscript in a bookstall, and there was an address in them for a woman, uh, Fraulein Sprengel, they call her. Some people say Anna Sprengel, but I, I don't think the Anna is actually in the literature, but they say Fraulein Sprengel. And Westcott, I think, went to Germany or at least contacted her somehow and got permission to work this system that was ostensibly um, maybe 100 or 150 years old at that time. Mm. So a Rosicrucian tradition that likely, because it was in Germany, likely had some sort of connection to the Tübingen circle, you know, where we get the Fama confessio right. and chemical wedding and this right. stuff. So, so I think they tried to make an unbroken a lineal transmission through, you know, and they even brought in people like um, Rudolf Steiner to substantiate this in some way. And so that's, that's the less tenable story than, than Westcott, you know, got the documents from 
Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a story I think I heard of, the second one. I haven't heard the first story, and I think that's the one that does seem to get around a little bit in in certain uh, arenas of, of the esoteric world. Uh, yeah. Now, when it started, uh, how did people join? Were, what was the qualifications? What were their intentions of people joining the order? So clearly this was a co-ed order, or not clearly, I mean, but it, it was... They wanted a co-ed order. So they basically, um, they Mathers essentially took this material from Westcott. And I think Westcott even contracted him to, to uh, work this into a system. Mathers obviously um, sort of built it on the chassis of the SRIA work. Because if you look at it, it has that same Kabbalistic structure. So if you've ever seen... Well, the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, each of those sephirot correspond to a grade in the Golden Dawn system. So if you're in Malkut, that's the um, uh, Neof, or no, it's the Zelator grade. And then if you're in Yesod, that's uh, Theoricus, and then Practicus Philosophus, all the way up the tree. Uh, with the Neophyte grade being sort of off the tree, that's mm. like a pre preliminary grade. But I bring this up because that grade structure, in fact, goes back to the Gold und Rosenkreutz, Gold und Rosenkreutzer, I think it was actually called. Hmm. And, and this is a an 18th century Rosicrucian tradition in Germany, um, established by Freemasons, German Freemasons, uh, Hermann Fichtuld and Simon Richter. I think are the two names, Her Hermann Fichtuld and Simon Richter. And that's where we see the first iteration of that particular grade structure, mm. the Kabbalistic grade structure. So back to your question, when they started to put this together, they wanted it to be a co-ed order. I'm not sure what the impetus was behind that, but I think it might have had something to do with competition with um, the Theosophical Society, particularly uh -huh. particularly the uh, ES, or Esoteric Section. So the, the, the Theosophical Society in London uh, formed another group called the Esoteric Section, which did this more practical occultism at the time, as opposed to the, you know, kind of mystic philosophical right. fair of the the regular Theosophical Society. There was also another um, kind of impetus at that time with Anna Kingsford and her Hermetic Society. So Anna Kingsford, and I forget the gentleman's name that worked under her, but uh, obviously in Anna's group and in the Theosophical Society under Blavatsky, there were uh, many women, you know, I think more women than men, actually. So hmm. they would be they would be shooting themselves in the foot starting this new hermetic order of the golden dawn if they did not make it co-ed you know they would right they would not be competitive in that sense that's an interesting idea i i wondered why they were allowing women in and it was one of the things that you know i think was sort of innovative for the the time and and also uh i mean i don't know if it was deliberate but uh both both tarot decks, you know, uh, two major tarot decks, Waits deck worked with the female and Alistair Crowley worked with the woman. It, I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but it, it was an interesting idea of sort of the male female energies working magically together. Certainly. Yeah. Um, Pamela Coleman Smith with Wait, and I think it was Frida Harris 
with Crowley uh, working on the art, both of whom were initiates. Um, Frida Harris actually also did a great uh, kind of triptych of uh, Masonic trestle boards. Yeah, I've seen a couple of them. They're beautiful. Oh, really. they're my favorite trestle boards. Yeah, yeah, I, I love them. She, I, they, I mean, they both were amazing in their own way. If you look at Pamela Coleman Smith art in general and how sh- how young she was, uh, but Lady Frida Harris is just an amazing artist because of the way oh, her yeah. style of art and the the taut tarot deck. It, it is interesting the the amount of prestigious members in the Golden Dawn, and also uh, I wanted your thoughts about how. Um, quite a few of them affected the culture in very significant ways. Yeah. So there was um, among the luminaries that were in that first iteration of the golden dawn, the, what we say pre schism uh, golden dawn, you had um, uh, Yates, William Butler Yates, uh, who was a prominent poet and writer. Uh, there was Florence Farr, I think, who you know, she gets a lot of attention. She was part of the Sphere group. So even in the Golden Dawn, there were various cliques. Hmm. So uh, among the Adepti, she formed what was known as the Sphere group, which did interesting inner order work. Um, but uh, she was an actress. Uh, I think, yeah, a stage actress and yes. very famous at that time. Of course, they had other... It's rumored that... Um, Arthur Conan Doyle was a member. I don't know if that's been substantiated, but that's rumored. Arthur Macon hmm? was a uh, was a member. Uh, yeah, there were several, and it was they were you know before that schism, and really before what's known as the Horos affair, which was a bad sort of a PR nightmare that happened right around the schism. But before that, it was kind of chic. You know, before we came on today, we were talking about my background and I thought something uh, Egyptian would be appropriate because they were they were certainly riding this wave of Egyptomania in London or probably the whole of UK, maybe even the world at that time uh, with E.A. Wallace Budge and his uh, his, uh, you know, stolen property from Egypt and, right. you know, so, yeah. One of my so, favorites yeah. was um, Annie Horniman, who uh, established Abbey Theater in Dublin, was a member, too, and helped. I don't know. She helped produce some of uh, one of Yates' play. And, and I don't know. I found a, an essay once by Yates about his connection to magic. I can't find it now, but he talks about how it helped with his writing in the long run, how it shaped and formed his thinking and his creativity. And, um, and you know, Yates certainly in the Irish tradition is a very influential writer and playwright and poet, like you said. So uh, it's, it's really fascinating that early, that the early stages of the golden dawn. Yeah. Yeah. I could see how it would sort of inform the, the creative person just because uh, there are activities such as active imagination, what they would call path working. Mm-hmm. So these path workings were um, as you you would do with tarot or a Kabbalist might do it, a hermetic Kabbalist. Actually, I talk about it like it's so common, but it's not a common thing. And it wasn't it wasn't practiced at all before the golden dawn. Hmm. Um, they kind of um, that practice emanated from their inner order teachings, how you would uh, path literally path working between the sephira or the sephira on the tree of life. 
on those paths. So it's funny. There's a little story about that. Uh, I think his name, oh, it was Henri Corbin, Henry Corbin, Henri Corbin. He, um, he had some familiarity with the Golden Dawn. He was familiar with pathworking. I think he was um, somehow in uh, in or around the group with um, Dion Fortune. Hmm. You know, Dion Fortune, her yes. mystical Kabbalah, big book. But um, he was somehow in her group of friends or aware of her work, and he learned pathworking through them. It might have been her post-schism group after the gd but uh what happened was is he somehow got you know gained audience with carl jung very early on and carl mm. jung appropriated the idea of active imagination from pe- golden dawn pathwork oh practice. i didn't know that yeah a, a, a transmission can actually be um I'm not prepared to do it right now, but uh, that can be substantiated that uh, he he got these ideas from Henri Corbin, who definitely got it from the Golden Dawn. And, and that informed, you know, a pretty wow. significant chunk of his uh, psychoanalysis. Sure. So so what you keep mentioning, the schism that happened. So how long was the first uh, um, period of the Golden Dawn, and maybe tell us a little bit about the schism, how it happened, and what was the effect of it. Well, the sort Annie Horniman had a lot to do with that that um, initial cor- kind of uh, fissure, you know, uh, because cliques were starting to form. I already mentioned the Sphere, an inner order group uh, headed up by Florence Farr, but Annie Horniman was, uh, I think, Mather's he had a bone to pick with her over something. I don't remember exactly what, but he, he was not friendly to her. A lot of the people at ISIS Urania temple, the first temple in London were, um, they were behind Horniman and Mathers had already left for Paris and started the, I think it was Hathor temple Mm. there. And, or yeah, and he was he was sort of in the process of converting everything to what they call Alpha et Omega, which is, a, as we'll see, a post-schism order. Anyway, these fissures were starting to happen largely around Horniman, I think, initially. Hmm. And then and then Yates got in on it, wrote some diatribe in her defense, I believe. And then you and then the sort of nail in the coffin was the Madame Horos affair. So as you know, around that time, it was kind of the the ebbing of the spiritualist movement, particularly in America. Mm. And she was an American spiritualist, and she found herself in the in the UK traveling with a couple a younger woman and a man, and they were shyster types. So they were, um, mm. you know, certainly just trying to make a quick buck through occult. Um, shenanigans right and definitely of the spiritualist variety but sort of snake oil people snake oil salesmen and um she they were embroiled in this uh this uh, it was a sexual abuse scandal so that young woman uh there was some sort of sexual abuse involving her and there was a giant court case uh and everybody was sort of outed as being a member of this society. In fact, another another component of this uh, 
schism, this big breakup, was that Westcott left some of his documents in a handsome cab, just some, you know, carriage. He left his some Golden Dawn documents there. They got into the wrong hands. Mm. They must have had his name on him on them. But his boss found, found out. So uh, Westcott was the London coroner at the time, a very prominent position, a, pu- a public position right and he was one of the founders of the golden dawn so it got back that it got back to you know those um you know his his work and all these people in the local government they found that he was an occultist and a weirdo so he was given an ultimatum to sort of walk away from the society or to you know lose his job and now he couldn't do that so he had to make some space he didn't fully sever ties but uh so all these things were kind of happening it wasn't looking good there was a very visible court case and that's when you start to see um most people just you know bailed uh, bailed altogether but uh those who hung on sort of uh you know that's where it splits into several different groups like falcon with the uh dr falcon i think he was the one who started the stella matutina mm-hmm. morning star and then there was like we said mathers was in london and he started alpha at omega mm-hmm. um so there were various sort of um uh, Falcon again like left right around that time he went to New Zealand because there was you know he started the Golden Dawn Current in New Zealand which was in fact the longest lasting um, you know this is it's post schism and it is Stella Matutina material but he brought that over around the turn of last century to New Zealand Hmm. and all the way up into the 70s like 1978 I believe some crazy long time wow that is long they had a golden non temple called fare ra now you'll see it spelt out sometimes it's w-h-a-r-e space r-a w-h-a-r-e a A lot of people say where ra but because it's in the aboriginal language in new zealand it's the w-h is pronounced like an f like as in food so okay fare ra and uh yeah that went on for quite a long time in fact after the schism there was a temple in chicago i think that went on for uh, into the 30s or 40s um there were of course uh bastions of the gd tradition in um ireland in bristol way out west sort of and uh a couple other if i had to guess i would say probably maybe seven to ten groups that carried on after the schism. So when did the the later interest develop then? Was it and was it because of Regarde? What was the uh when did it sort of have its recapitulation and into modern times? Right. So Alistair Crowley, who was a member oh, I forgot to bring him up. He also had a lot to do with the schism because he was sent he was one of Mather's cronies and he was sent to the Isis Uranian temple to acquire some documents and to um sort of take control of that temple again. Um, which somehow he was kind of able to do for a bit. I'm not sure how one man could go there and do all but he was very um he was a strange individual. So he was able to get these documents um, and 
later so he he ended up turning on Mathers uh he he commissioned Mathers to translate the uh Lesser Key of Solomon the Goetia Lesser mm. Key of Solomon the Goetia is one of the book one of the five books of the Lesser Key this uh early modern grimoire and uh he he turned on him there was also a court case there because uh, Mathers, I don't think, was um, compensated for his work or only partially compensated. And so Crowley has his post-schism group called the, I think it's Astrum Argentium. So it's AA. Nobody mm -hmm. knows, it, unless you're an initiate, you don't know what the AA stands for. But I think it's a uh, Astrum Argentium or something like that. Star of Silver, I want to say. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, so he had his group, and like I said, several people have had these groups going all the way up into the mid-20th century, but around the, I want to say 1940, late 30s, 1940, um, Crowley published the, the grade material, the outer-order grade material of the Golden Dawn in his Equinox magazine mm -hmm. so so that started kind of uh an interest that rekindled interest in the golden dawn as a working tradition even though there were still a few embers here and there that kind of rekindled things uh israel regardi as you mentioned he was um crowley's secretary for a time i want to say in the teens 1910 15 something like that he was his secretary and regardi also put together that big expose on uh the golden dawn it was actually stella matutina work slightly different than first iteration golden dawn only in very minor ways but uh what you see there could more in regardi's book could more accurately be called stella matutina uh, but yeah of course then kind of a period of dormancy and then you get the the occult esoteric revival in the 60s with the hippie era and people interested in astrology and tarot and then all of a sudden kind of a, a rekindling of gd isms in whatever form do you think that uh, or is it true that Aleister Crowley broke uh, vows of secrecy to release the material and because wasn't it secret before that you had to be part of an order to get the material yeah yeah so he was definitely he should not have published that material neither should regardi because both if both of them were properly initiated there's a clause in there and i feel like i could say this there's a clause clause that says if you reveal this it's right there i want to say in the neophyte grade uh during what's kind of an obligation or an oath uh you swear that if you reveal any of the material that um you're that a deadly and hostile current of will will be set in motion that's how they it's worded almost wow. exactly like that a deadly and hostile current of will will be set in motion so it's not like in you know i think there are gnarlier uh penalties in masonry actually if you've heard the uh the masonic penalties at each of the degrees they're very gruesome very gory but um this one's comparatively tame, but also very frightening metaphysically. So if you right. are the person who has an enchanted worldview 
if you are a person who believes in these non-causal agencies or these supernaturally causal agencies, then, um, you know, you don't want a deadly and hostile current of will set in motion on you. That would be terrible. That would be. So what do you think then of people that are not initiated today that read the, I mean, I know there's at least a couple of books that have the Golden Dawn, all of the material and the grades and, and uh, what do you think of people that aren't initiated uh, reading the material and even you working know, with it, I suppose? Well, first, um, they're not obligated to secrecy. So, so that whole clause is kind of out the window. There's, there's no penalty for that. I mean, it's, it's just like anybody who reads uh, Duncan's Ritual you know, about Masonic ritual. It's a publicly published expose and anybody can read it. But uh, I would say that, uh, yes, there, I've heard people having some success with self-initiation in the Golden Dawn Path or, or what they call astral initiation, where you kind of put yourself through the grades. Um, I guess it can be done, but... Um, and, and again, I've heard of some people have, you know, seeing some benefits from that or experiencing benefits from that. But I don't think there's much of a, a comparison to actually uh, being initiated into the tradition and properly doing the grades in a temple with all the paraphernalia and regalia and the temple genius. Like each temple has its own genius, like a cult image, basically. And, uh, you know, that's interesting. uh, What, what does that mean exactly? So just as in, um, temples of old, you know, Greco-Roman temples, uh, each of them had in their sanctum sanctorum had a cult image, which would be like, it could be an abstract sort of, uh, herm of, of, of stone, or it could be a detailed sculpture, right? But it was meant to represent a certain god or genius uh the genius of that god and the way that these um cult images were sort of established was that they were and this practice actually goes back to egypt um in the holy of holies in the center of the temples they had their cult image there usually in some sort of ark you know with Hmm. there would be a couple of rings on either side and a and they would put the uh, wooden dowels through it and do a procession once a year, maybe on the day of that deity. But, but um, so, so yeah, they, they did rituals to theurgic type rituals to animate these statues. The opening of the mouth actually hmm. is a statue ah. and a reference, a reference to statue animation. So you see this in antiquity, um, in you know again egyptian and greco-roman temples that they have this cult image and it goes back in fact um at least i want to say 12 to 1500 years bc Mm -hmm. that that you see this practice so but and probably much further but um anyway so the golden dawn because of mather's likely because of Mather's more than Westcott, but he sort of built in some of these old theurgic practices that, uh, you know, some of them survived through, through Agrippa, 
Mm -hmm. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Um, he may or may not have had access to things like the Picatrix, but he certainly had Iamblichus, Proclus, Porphyry, um, and these Neoplatonists, right, who mm. talk about statue animation and talk about theurgy. So he liked the idea of each temple, as temples of old always had, invariably having a central cult image, which is almost like the egregore of that temple. Right. The, the higher genius yeah. of, of that temple. And they would, um, you know, they would, there would be a statue animation and it has a name and there's propitiations to the genius of the temple and every, where, where you make offerings and sort of sacrifices to these entities, you also reap the rewards of that relationship because it's a tremendous source of power uh, that can be shared among your temple mates. I love that. Now, how do they determine what the genius is in the temple? Well, it's usually in the temple name, and I'm sure the genius comes before the temple name, of course, but uh, you could see like Isis Urania is uh -huh. a certain a certain iteration of Isis. You know how all the gods and goddesses had epithets right. after their names. So depending on, you know, if, if they were the genius loci of this place or that place, they had a sort of different iteration, like Mars Ulterior was the uh, Roman Mars. You know, he, he was the genius or egregore of Rome. I think I'm saying that right. Ma Mars Ulterior, I think. Oh, I don't know. I'm sure that you're better at that than I am. <laughs> well, well, the, the so the point is, is that, uh, yeah, they would have in the temple names would have usually the name of their genius. Nowadays, we kind of keep that secret. I know in my um, in my uh, tradition, uh, mine is the Hermetic Society of the Golden Dawn. It's a kind of a restorative Golden Dawn order. Um, I'd say there are probably 20 operative uh, Golden Dawn style temples, um, or not temples, but uh, traditions practicing right now. But um, ours is the Hermetic Society of the Golden Dawn, and our temple is named after our genius. We usually just say the letter M and then put a little therefore symbol, the three mm. dots. Uh, but um, so we, um, so why, the question was why have the genius or? Well, how would they choose the genius? Oh. So what would be the method? Is it, and, and actually who would do it even? So I can only say for us, I'm not sure how they chose um, I, I imagine because of Mathers and his erudition that he would do it sort of um, geographically. He would probably hmm. choose by some astrogeography what was the pertinent entity for that area on wow. the globe. Um, I know that in our tradition, we use um, also star names for each of the temples. So... Um, the relationship between the stars on the celestial sphere is commensurate to the relationship between the temples on the terrestrial sphere. So um, our temple was named not by us, but by the imperator of the, of the order mm. of our society. And uh, it was sort of bestowed upon us. I have seen a temple or two pop up since, uh, since we founded ours five years ago and 
I don't think they might have a little sway in um, who they can get, or there might be a discussion about it, but uh, I'm pretty sure uh, historically it's just something that's kind of bequeathed from oh. on high. Now, do you find that based on your experience so far that the um, current Golden Dawns that you know of are, are very active? Do they have trouble with people coming out for doing the rituals? Uh, I know because I know some orders have had that struggle. Uh, even with Freemasonry, they've had sometimes getting people to come out and, and do things, you know, has been a little more challenging. Well, yeah, certainly COVID uh, and the pandemic in general has had uh, an effect on all of our activities, right? But um, uh, I'd say before, I mean, we're just as busy now as we were before. Um, so that kind of uh, wore off, you know, but uh, I I don't see a lasting effect in terms of our particular group. I think we just kind of had press the pause button for a year or so there. And now we're back in business. But, uh, and then as far as other Golden Dawn and Golden Dawn-like groups, because there are a lot of those too, like right. Builders of the Adidum, right. uh, OHM is another one, uh, Fraternity of Hidden Light. There, there are several that are uh, sort of uh, based on the Golden Dawn model. Like for instance, having uh, those the Kabbalistic grade structure or having outer order grades that are theoretical and then having practical inner order grades, like the, the basic chassis on which this whole thing operates is kind of pervasive in these magical societies today. And you, you simply can't escape the Golden Dawn influence. I mean, even in terms of the knowledge lectures, sure. like um, it's the, it's the, I mean, you have to know that stuff in order to meet proficiency to make the next grade. So it's like, it's pretty great, though. I, I am very glad that we have, like in our literature, it says the work must be perfect. It says that. So when we hand in um, a or test out of a, a particular grade, we have to know that knowledge lecture, just like in masonry. We have to know how to right. just recite it. We have to be able to say the whole thing. Uh, which is great because uh, the whole idea of these learning grades, the outer order grades, is that when you do get to practical theurgy, you know, talisman, talisman making or divination or Enochian operations and, uh, you know, statue animation in the inner order, uh, you, you will have had this education in all the nuts and bolts of uh, practical magical occultism uh th that goes back a long way pre-renaissance i mean but certainly certainly in like agrippa i think that's kind of the high watermark in the grimoire tradition you know because agrippa in his three books really has i mean you know that's a, that's everything up to that point right i mean he he left out very little in terms of western occultism i mean that's uh so so you get something like agrippa's three books and then the solomonic stuff we talked about um some of d's work john john d's work and uh, uh francis barrett's the magus which is kind of riffs on a lot of uh, Agrippa's work. Anyway, this sort of stuff kind of funnels into the Golden Dawn tradition. And what I really love to say about the Golden Dawn, um, 
just in general, is that it at that point in time, the 1890s, this golden age of the Golden Dawn, this really, um, you know, pre-schism, but running strong and for 10 years or so at that point, 1887, they started. So let's say around 1893, 95, that's in the heart of the, the sort of best era of the Golden Dawn. And I'd like to think of it as um, a concentration of the the Western esoteric traditions just bottlenecking at mm. that point. Everything just kind of coming in, you know, funneling up to this just great syncretization, so syncretized, so complete, you know, because you had all, you know, all the Agrippa, you had this grimoireic material, uh, you even had the classic stuff like like we were talking about statue animation and right. having a temple genius you know there was just this period where the tarot was in there the alchemy the astrology uh all the hermetic arts kabbalah was in there the egyptianisms the enochianisms all of this stuff was woven together into such a great and comprehensive system that it's no wonder why we're still talking about it today. And it's no wonder that there are dozens of organizations that are patterned upon that. It was a, a magical time. So really, so I, I always see it as kind of an esoteric renaissance. And I think that, um, like, I do tarot for a living, and one of the things I th- I think and my husband thinks, people are always trying to make these new tarot decks. And, and believe me, I, I think some of them are kind of cool and quirky, but they're not, they can't surpass the tarot that came out of that time, whether whatever tarot you want to look at. And I, I think people are trying to do that rather than I, I gleam still from them all that rich knowledge and experience. I think we haven't even tapped fully into it myself. Yeah. You know, uh, we've ha- we've got kind of I guess it's a little bit of a joke in our society where one of the chiefs of our there's chiefs who operate these things. One of the one of the order chiefs and I have a little um, kind of. um we joke about which tarot to use because he's a big proponent. He happens to like um, the builders of the Adam Paul Foster case deck that you color in, which is great. You know, obviously very derivative of the rider weight, you know, only some slight differences. I like that you have to color it in. Uh, I think Builders of the Adam is a great group, but I remind him sometimes jokingly that, you know, we're a restorative order and in being a restorative order, we don't even go back to uh, the weight rider weight deck, weight Coleman Smith deck. We go back to um, the Marseille. So, so our particular temple out here in Phoenix, you know, from the beginning we were using Marseille because they would have been using one of two decks. The original Golden Dawn members, 1887 to 88, would have been using either the Marseille deck or maybe the Worth deck. Right. The, right. Yeah, he, he's so. definitely an interesting. We want to do a show on him. I just discovered how interesting he was yeah. <laughs> reading it. Was I? They republished uh, Tarot of the Magicians. Uh, I don't know, recently and uh, his book and what an interesting fellow. I mean, just what he says about magic and divination alone in that book is really, really wonderful, I would say. Uh, so, yeah, I could understand why you would sort of go back to that that deck, um, the Marseille deck. Uh, it's it's a, a lovely and I, I have um, 
the rendition by Yov Ben Ben. I forget. Oh it. yeah, it's so CBD. Yeah, the CBD is really lovely. I really like, and I liked his book actually. It's really interesting how he approached the imagery and things like that. I thought it was really, really good, and 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 it worked. I mean, it, the, he actually does look at the symbols and look at the colors and he talks about it. So I really like that book a lot. So do you think then, what do you think in terms of where the Golden Dawn is going? Do you think it's growing? Are enough young people getting involved? Uh, do you, what is your own vision of where the Golden Dawn could go and how it might impact a society? Well, I think if we zoom out a bit, um, I was just listening to something they were talking. I was listening to Chris Brennan's podcast. He's a Hellenistic astrologer and he had a guest on there and they were talking about certain transits, certain outer planet transits. I also study uh, traditional astrology. I only use the seven visible planets in my practice. I do from Hellenistic to the Renaissance and we didn't have Uranus, Neptune and Pluto then. And there are reasons why I do anyway, I'm digressing, but there are, there is an outer order transit that started happening recently. Uh, I, not outer order, outer planet, trans Saturnian planet, transit like a certain conjunction or i forget what aspect they're making but this seems to be supporting this new um fascination with uh western esotericism or or even just occultism so people are definitely more interested in astrology probably even more so than they were in the 70s oh yeah which is ubiquitous so astrology is massive right now yes um tarot is as big as ever you know you ought to know that you know yeah. more than most so tarot is just massive i mean you a bazillion tarot books so we're we're kind of riding this wave right now where I'm not an anthropologist, so I can't say what precipitated this, but we do know that people are less likely to be involved in organized religion right now, yet they still are searching for meaning, right? So mm. how do these people, you know, your typical person, they, they're not willing to necessarily buy the whole uh, Judeo-Christian package per se, um, but they still um, maybe believe in somewhat of an enchanted worldview or they they or they don't know and it's attractive to them or they're interested in the aesthetics of it. But that isn't to say it's merely superficial. If somebody's just in, interested in the aesthetics of alchemy, hmm. they like the way the Alembics look, they like the paraphernalia um, that that doesn't mean it's necessarily superficial. That just means, you know, cause something's drawing them to right. that. Just like we were talking about what's drawing, you know, you to this tradition. So there's um, like my first story, you know, going yes. to that temple, yeah. but uh, yeah. So I think because we're in this, in a time where people are, definitely searching for meaning and purpose and there's a lot of uh you know strangeness uh in the air and a lot of uh un sort of unpredictability but also uncertainty so um i think that it's a great time for the golden dawn i think this is a a better time there probably hasn't been a better time in 100 years Mm. Yeah, astrology, especially, I think tarot has caught on. But astrology, when you look at so much 
depth in astrology, like the whole movement of the Hellenistic movement that's been, I, I'm aware of Chris Brennan, I follow his podcast and Demeter George and and it's been, uh, you meet people, they know so much about their chart. When I was first uh, in the 80s, you'd be lucky if people knew your their moon and ascendant. And now they know everything about their chart. And it's, so you can really see it's it's caught on, on on a deep level. And tarot too, but not not quite yet the way astrology is in terms of the depth of it. Tarot is still a little bit more flimsy. And so right. we'll see how that goes over time, if some of it will sort of trend away or not. I mean, it will never go out of style, tarot. Uh, so, but that's interesting because I mean, I don't know why I had the impression that, that magical orders were on the decline and I didn't really, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I do know people that have been dedicated to Boda and, um, some of the other ones you mentioned earlier and they're still really involved and, uh, the fraternity of hidden life, uh, light. I've met people that I really like from that order here and in, in, in Santa Monica, they meet at Michael's lodge. Uh, so it, it's uh, but it, it's nice to hear that you feel it's more of a, a heyday for the Golden Dawn. Yeah, I feel like, you know, the the environment is right. Um, and, you know, the, the one kind of drawback is that we're so uh, particularly after the pandemic, um, you know, people would rather, you know, work from home and they're maybe less social. I don't know if we're going to have a kind of a a. a, a a recoil back to um, people actually willing to go out for a few hours to, uh, you know, go to like a, a tarot meditation or a hermetic Kabbalah study group or things like that. But we've been having those here. We have sort of a porchway group here in Phoenix just called, you know, innocuously titled the hermetic study group is all we call it. Right. Mm. And it's sort of, it's sort of our outward face. Uh, we meet at a metaphysical bookstore here in town and uh you know people show up and those who have an interest and sort of um proclivity and sort of apt to display some aptitude for the material will sometimes get an invite to uh look deeper into becoming a member of the temple now that's the other thing and we know this in masonry more than ever we know this in freemasonry that you can't just let anybody in because it will really affect uh, what you're trying to do. Uh, we saw that for almost a hundred years with Freemasonry, and it all but kind of it all but turned the whole operation anemic. Basically, you mm -hmm. know, it became this just like Kiwanis style uh, thing, you know, with all the all the innards sort of scooped out of it, right? And it right. was only it was only really over the last maybe. I'd say really 10 years, really over the last 10 years that we get this explosion of literature, uh, where we get Masonic cons, where people show up for these conferences that are not just business meetings and things like that. Uh, plus in the lodge experience, and I say this because it's echoing the magical society, sure. thing, it's kind of the same. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, it is just how there is a, um, there's a tendency now for restorative Freemasonry. They say the Masonic Restoration Foundation is a very popular thing. And it, people are starting to turn back to smaller lodges, um, more more sort of formalism, uh, you know, tuxes and music and good food and an emphasis on good ritual. I say this because our Golden Dawn Society, the Society of the Golden Dawn, is sort of uh, mirroring that 
very ethos hmm. except in the golden dawn tradition so we are we insist on you know good paraphernalia regalia the you know our pillars that we handmade are replicas to spec of the isis urania pillars wow you know we took our time to make the they're the same specs like completely and um you know and we've got to be careful on who you let in there is a uh there's a warning in one of the Masonic lectures. I think it might be the apron lecture and Michael could probably um, corroborate this, but there's, it says somewhere in there um, one wait a hundred men could not undo the, um, the damage done by one sort of bad man. That's a bad paraphrase, but you understand yeah. what I'm saying. A hundred men, a hundred good men can't undo the damage done by one bad man. So that means don't, that means be very careful on who you let in because that's also feeding your egregore. That's also contributing. It could be cancerous to your genius. Well, unfortunately, it did happen at Michael's Lodge, and it's amazing how it was started with one person, though it became more than one person. It, it changed the whole uh, genius of that lodge. And I, I don't think he, that lodge is alone in, in that happening. Um, but it is, it's one of those, uh, it's a good warning, you know, in the sense that it, you have to sort of see what kind of character, what their intentions are, and what your own unique lodge is trying to represent, you know, because that's every, it does seem like every, I'm sure it's true with the Golden Dawn there, you have different geniuses, you're going to have different energies, and you're trying to, you know, get people that want to work with that energy instead of come in and say, hey, this is the energy I'm bringing in, and I'm going to destroy that energy. Because so that's, yeah. that's really, to me, what it's about, too, is respecting what that temple is and not saying, you know, maybe you, you maybe even have a good idea for a temple, but you don't just go in and take over, you know, and that, that can happen. Well, I'll send you a petition that you're the type of person we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the one quick thing I wanted to ask, and it is where we have like a couple minutes left, but the secret chiefs, are they real? Someone asked me that once and I, I didn't know how to answer. I said, well, I don't know. I'm not a member of the golden Dawn. I just know, you know, so the idea of them. So, I mean, that's a, that couldn't, you know, kind of spiral off into uh, a lot of, well, yes, I would say, yes, they are real, right? We talk about them, we name them, yes, they are real. So, well, we don't name them specifically, but when we talk about it, we sort of give body to that idea. I don't think that there are three um, tangible, you know, flesh and bone chiefs you know that are the secret chiefs but i do believe that they're an idea much like an egregore a tripartite egregore maybe uh something like that i mean it is something it is a a thought form that we have collectively fed for 130 years or however long it's been so i would say yes on on that sort of level and on not only in the macro, like a collective thought form projected out there, but also on the micro psychological level, um, we've also sort of made them. So there's this sympathetic micro macro relationship in the, in our unconscious together as a group, we know about um, the chiefs and we could perhaps even meet them on that plane, you know? 
That's a wonderful answer, and I can definitely get behind that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was just really fascinating. I, I really did learn a lot of new things about the Golden Dawn, so thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me, Krista and Michael, and, um, and yeah, it's been a pleasure. And join us next time as we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. Have a wonderful, magical week.